Romans, the fourth chapter. Uh, Today, let's begin in verse 13, and we're going to read down through verse 22. We're not going to get through all of those verses today, but I want to read down through them to kind of get a picture of the whole here. Romans 4, 13 through 22, and I'll be reading from the King James Version this morning. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who were of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, It is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we know without a moving of the Holy Spirit to bring understanding we have nothing so father please help us help us that we might be an obedient to serve a servant today help all of us that we might have ears that we might hear your truth and have a better understanding of who you are and of your wonderful grace and it's in jesus name i pray amen now we know that throughout this letter so far, Paul has been establishing the doctrine, the truth of justification by faith. He has stated the truth that there is none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, whether Jew or Gentile, there is no partiality. All are in need of justification by faith. And so now, here in chapter 4, Paul has been tearing down the objections that the unbelieving Jews had. And the the first objection was a justification by works. You see, the the Jews, they were taught to be law keepers. And so they believed that as they kept the law, which they couldn't, but they believed as they did, uh, that they were justified, that they were made righteous because of the law. And then Paul asked the question, what does Scripture say? Well, if you believe that, what does your Scripture say? 
And then he uses Abraham and David as his examples, two of the, the pillars of the Jewish faith. Apart from any works that Abram or Abraham had done, God had made a covenant with Abram and had stated that he would be the father of many people through a descendant that would be born of his own body, though he was old and his wife barren and well past childbearing years. And Abraham, Abram believed God. That's Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abram, or later be called Abraham, I'll, I'll probably intermix those names, so just bear with me on that. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Abram had faith. Abram believed the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness apart from works. Nothing that he did, to earn it or merit it. And then Paul quotes from David in Romans 4, verse 6. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So by the very word that they held dear, by the very word in which they, they would stand behind and say, but Paul, we have been given the oracles, we have been given the law, all these things, surely we don't need anything more. He dismantles this objection of works righteousness and then tears down the objection that they had that circumcision was a means to salvation and righteousness and justification before God. And again, Paul uses Abraham. Uh, let's look in Romans 4, verses 9 and 10. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And again, Paul, what does Scripture say? And you follow the timeline, and we know that, that Abraham was declared righteous some 12 to 20 years before God even instituted circumcision as a mark or the sign of the covenant. So circumcision, therefore, plays no role whatsoever in Abraham being declared righteous, justified before God. So now that, that gets us down to today. And in, in verses 13 through 16, Paul turns to this next objection, which he knew was on the minds of, of the Jews. And that is the question, does the law justify? Or is there justification by faith through the law? In in Verse 13, let's put up verse 13. Paul makes this declaration, this, this, <laughs> it, it, he just slams it right with this one verse. For the promise that he, Abraham, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It says it very plainly here, doesn't it? And again, what was the promise? And I know we looked at Genesis 15:6, but perhaps we'd get a better uh, idea of it or more clarity of it. Let's go to Genesis 22, 
and read here. And you will know that this is where Abram had been tested by God. And Abraham obeyed God in taking his son Isaac up to Moriah to be offered as a burnt offering. And we're going to pick up the account in verse 10. So let's read Genesis 22, verse 10 through 18. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice." I believe that perhaps this is what Paul was referring to there uh, when we read Romans 4, verse 18. We put that verse back up. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he, this is talking of Abraham, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. So, the King James says, so shall thy seed be. And let's keep in mind, we want to put a timetable on all of this, that this promise was given to Abraham some 430 years before the law was given to Moses. That's an enormous amount of time. So what did the law have to do with Abraham? Nothing. Nothing. Some some 430 and 30 years, and we get this, Paul tells us this in Galatians 3, let's go there. And it's also in Galatians 3 that I believe Paul gives clarity to the word seed. In Romans 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. So here, where was the first mention that we have of seed? Remember that? Where was that first mention? In Genesis 3rd chapter, um, the 15th verse, we can put it up there. This, was, um, this is what God says to the serpent who had tempted Eve. This is what God says to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. If you look, see there, and it should be that way, probably is that way. In your Bible, capital S on this seed, he shall bruise your head. Who? Well, this is Christ. This is the seed, capital S. 
shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, so now in Galatians 3, verses 16 through 18. Now to Abraham and his seed. Now did you notice here, capital S. The, the, the lineage from which Christ came through Abraham, through David. So I believe another reason that Paul used Abraham and David uh, and, and as he's talking about this. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Are you catching all of this? That promise that was made to Abraham, confirmed before God in Christ. So so don't don't lose sight of of the fact of of, of that. How was Abraham saved? We were all saved through Christ, through, through, through grace. It's always been that way, always been that way. Cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So, aren't you thankful that we have the entirety of Paul's letters that we can go to and get clarity as we read between his different letters? So The the seed is Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham, Now here, what we must keep in mind is that it is being in Christ that makes us Abraham's seed and therefore heirs according to the promise. It makes us a child of Abraham. A spiritual child. Not a child of the flesh, but spiritually. What we must keep in mind is that it is being in Christ that makes us Abraham's seed and therefore heirs according to the promise. Not according to the flesh, but heirs according to the promise, according to faith, according to the seed, Jesus Christ. See, we, we are born again believers today, and we can rejoice in Christ Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 2, let, let's read. I love these portions of Scripture. Ephesians 2, let's read verses 11 through 19, and what Christ has done on our behalf. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. You understand what's talking about Jew and Gentile. There, There is no... We don't look at it that way anymore. One. 
one in Christ. No other. Anything else is unbelieving and lost, you see. Verse 16, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were, were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Only one way. There is only access one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. Verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't that glorious, you see, for us today? Then, let's read a couple of verses in Ephesians 3, verses 5 and 6. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. See, we're, we're heirs. We're joint heirs. With Christ. That, that, that's why I say it. it's all by being in Christ. So we no longer, as I said, think in terms of Jews or Gentiles. We no longer should be thinking in terms of circumcised or uncircumcised. No longer be thinking in those terms, under the law, outside the law. But rather, Christ is all in all. And I get that from Colossians 3 verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. And if we go to Galatians, uh, the third chapter again, verses 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So do we see it? We are heirs according to the promise we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. Thank God that justification is only by grace through faith only and not through any other means. The promise given Abraham was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What if it had been through the law? What if it had been? Paul answers this uh, in for, uh, verses 14 and 15. Let's look first at verse 14 in Romans 4. For if those who are of the law are heirs, and it's talking about working the law, uh, a righteousness by works. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. You see, if men were able to keep God's law perfectly, which they can't, but if they could, then they would indeed be heirs. 
of God. But again, this is impossible. But if they could, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm, but if it were true, it would make void the promise. It would nullify the promise and make it of no effect. Again, the law cannot save someone from sin. It can only reveal sin. So we understand that. Sin is exposed and the law brings about wrath. See, that's, that's the judgment to come. So now let's go to verse 15. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see, the law reveals sin. It brings us guilty before God and deserving of wrath. That's what the law does. But wait a minute. What's that? For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Preacher, what's that saying? Paul is not saying that where there is no law, there is no sin. He's not saying that there was much sin, much failure before God ever gave the law through Moses. We could say amen to that just for reading stories prior in Genesis. But what the law does is to define sin. It makes it transgression. The law makes our guilt all the more evident and obvious. It it silences the mouth of the one who would try to say that they have no sin. And Paul points this out in Romans 3. We preached on that a few weeks ago. Romans 3 verses 19 and 20. Let's read that again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Why? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Let me pause there for a minute, because none could keep the law perfectly. None. None righteous. Therefore now, verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law cannot save. The law only reveals sin. Let me read this from John Piper. John said it this way. So, so, So listen. Before the law came in, all kinds of sinful attitudes and actions might go unnoticed because there was no specific commandment that was violated. But when the law comes in, the knowledge of sin explodes. What was lying dead, as it were, is brought to light as a specific violation or transgression of an explicit command. So, for example, I remember this is, I'm quoting Piper here, this is not me. I, see, I, 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 that's why I like to read other people's stuff, because I can say some stuff that uh, I might get in trouble for otherwise. So here's the example, Piper says. Before the law was given, teenagers may have bad-mouthed their mothers and fathers when they got together. There may have been some vague uneasiness about it, but then came the law in Exodus 20.12, Honor your father and your mother. Now, every disrespectful word is a specific violation of an explicit command. And not only is sin exposed more clearly, it increases. End quote. 
Did you see what what, what it's saying when it when it says uh, uh, where there is no law, there is no transgression? Well, if, if you don't know something's wrong, how how are you going to know something's wrong unless you're told it's wrong? So I hope that makes it clear. Because before specific laws, people would try to ease their conscience by saying, oh, well, that, well that's not too bad. Now, to say we are all born, I believe, from the beginning of time with a conscience. I believe that. And, and so I believe people were just overriding their conscience even before the law and doing things they knew they shouldn't be doing, but they were justifying themselves. Well, there's no law telling me I can't. And then the law and the commands of God come and tells them, no, you're a sinner, you see. See, Paul also states it this way. Let's go to Romans 7, Romans 7, verses 7 through 11. Sometimes some of the phrasing of Paul does it kind of make your head spin sometimes a little bit? You're going, well, wait a minute, what, what, what did he say? What, what's he saying there? So, so let's read and just pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, give us clarity on your word today. Romans 7, verse 7 through 11. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, this is Paul saying, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Let's pause there. What? You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. See, see, here's it. Oh, you mean I can't do that? Oh, now I want to do that. You see. see, And isn't this made very real? We can see this with little kids, can't we? Alright, now I don't, don't touch anything on this table that's not for you. Don't touch these things. And then it seems like that's all they want to do. Is go touch that thing. When they've been told not to. You, you, you see what he's saying? It, it's a natural rebellion that seems to cause us to resent a command or a prohibition. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Let me pause again. Without the law, without the command, without the prohibition, all things were free. Free to do. In effect, free to sin. Sin was dormant. No guilt. See, if we didn't know it was wrong, then to us it wasn't wrong. Let's go on verse 9. I was alive once without the law. I was just a happy pagan. That's what it's saying. I was alive. Well, I was free. Well, I thought I was having a good time. But when the commandment came, when the law came, when someone shared with me the gospel and pointed out from the Word of God my sin, you see, 
Sin revived, Paul says, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. You see what he's saying? Because you you can see it in people who are lost. They could care less about anything. And they're as happy as can be. Not knowing that they're doomed for hell apart from saving grace. That which I thought would bring life turned out to be the way of spiritual death. It killed me. My sin now revealed to me, now made clear to me, was shown to me that I am a sinner under the wrath of God. Killed me. God didn't give the law in order that mankind might be saved by it. The law was given to reveal sin, to show our weaknesses and our failures. The law was our, Paul would say, our tutor to reveal our sin and to bring us to Christ that we might be saved by grace through faith. Let's look once more at that verse 16, Romans 4, 16. Therefore, It is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Therefore, or for this reason, see, I believe refers back to what was said in in verse 14, if those who are of the law are heirs, if they can earn their righteousness and their justification by works, by keeping the law, then faith, that the promise is of no effect, it is worthless, it has been made void. But that is not the case. The law brings wrath. So, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. Why? Why is this important? Why is it important that, that the way to inherit the promise is according to grace? Let's keep looking there. So that the promise might be sure, might be certain, might be guaranteed, might be unshakable and sure to all the seed. Not only to those who are of the law, but also of those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You see, this unshakable this guaranteed, this certain and sure promise will be to all the seed, the descendants, the believing Jews who are the one who are of the law, and the believing Gentiles, those who are of the faith of Abraham. And you see the root that is the basis for all of this. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace. God's grace. It's the root of it all. The grace of God. It all comes back to that. MacArthur, John MacArthur said it this way. Let let me quote. The crux of this passage is verse 16. God reckons the believer's faith as righteousness in order that salvation might be in accordance with grace. 
were it not for God's sovereign grace providing a way of salvation, even a person's faith could not save them. That is why faith is not simply another form of human works, as some theologians throughout the centuries have maintained. The power of salvation or justification is in God's grace and not in man's faith. Abraham's faith was not in itself righteousness, but it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Do you see that? That's God's grace. It wasn't Abraham's faith that made him righteous. It was reckoned to him by God's grace as righteousness. On the basis of the one who would himself graciously provide for believers, including Abraham, the righteousness they could never attain by themselves. End quote. Just that, that, that line that, that, out of that quote. That is why faith is not simply another form of human works. Oh, I need faith. Well, I'm going to get me some. It doesn't work that way. See, if you're born again today, I hope you are overwhelmed by the fact that the grace of God lifted you up out of the miry clay. That showed you your sin through the law, through His Word. And He drew you to Himself. It was all grace. Nothing you did. And it continues this grace by which we stand. This grace by which we live, Paul will say in other portions. And it's this grace that sustains us. We don't deserve it. We didn't merit it. But it came at God's good pleasure. How can we understand that? Why would He offer grace to me? See, Whew. that's what gets me. And I tell you, that should get you too. Why would He offer grace to someone like you? Faith comes by grace. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 becoming more enormous to you as we continue through this series in Romans? I hope it does. For by grace, it all comes back to grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, now, I'm of the camp and, and believe, as, as many of the, the guys I read do, that, that the article of that, and that is referring to the faith. And that faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. It is by grace that He grants us faith. We didn't stir it up by ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. So we got our first picture of this back in Romans 3, verse 24. I didn't I went back, kind of looked at my notes from that sermon. I didn't I didn't expound on grace that much back then, perhaps knowing that it was coming here. Romans 3, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
grace. Free, unmerited favor. Can I say it that way? And when I say that, you know, grace is a kindness shown to someone who does not deserve it at all, but rather deserves the complete opposite, wrath. It's absolutely free. And when I say that, I mean that it's absolutely free to us. Because it came at a tremendous cost. And that cost was the death of God's only begotten Son. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is all about being in Christ. And we only become in Christ by the grace of God as He gives the free gift of faith. So our, our eternal future rests on God's grace. Everything. God's grace makes certain, makes certain the future of all those who by grace through faith believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's grace gives the guarantee. I want to read Martin Lloyd-Jones' quote as, as, as we're bringing this to a, a close. This is Lloyd-Jones' quote. Salvation, thank God, is all of God. It is all of the grace of God. And it is for the reason for that reason alone, that it is sure. Your ultimate salvation and mine in glory is guaranteed by one thing only, and that is that it is by grace and through faith, and not by works or circumcision or anything in man. Our salvation is sure because it is founded on the character of God Himself, His everlasting and abounding grace. Do you realize this? See, you, you can get audio of, of him preaching still. And, and him going along here, and he's, he becomes overwhelmed. Well, do you realize this? If our salvation and our ultimate arrival in glory depended in any sense whatsoever upon ourselves and upon our abilities and faculties, our powers and faithfulness, or our understanding, not a single one of us would ever arrive in glory. If our ultimate salvation depended in any sense or in any shape or form upon anything in us, not one of us would have final salvation. Thank God! that it does not depend on us, but that it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed. It is not in our hands, thank God. It is in His hands, and therefore it cannot fail. He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature should be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of my faith? No. 
But because I am in His hands, not my grasp of Him, but His mighty grasp of me. (laughs) But you may say, well, that is only the theology of Paul. Well, listen then to the Lord Jesus Christ saying the same thing. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. It is impossible. It is because we are in this hand. This hand of God. This hand of Christ that our salvation is certain and absolutely sure. End quote. Man, do we have much to marvel in? Do we have much to praise the Lord for His grace toward us? Salvation by faith according to grace. And may we rest And may we live in God's grace. (laughs) None of us are perfect. All of us still sin. But God's grace is still sure. What can pluck us out of His hand? No one. Not even myself. He will always come for me. He will always convict me. And then, as I confess, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That's the grace of God. The grace of God that is from everlasting to everlasting. It will never fail. Never, never, never. So may we live in knowing what we have received. In Christ, by faith, by grace, through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks. Oh my, how can we cease from giving thanks that You would offer grace to such a worm as I? Lord, thank You, thank You, thank You. And in the midst of just a deprived group of people that you would call some to be your very own. And so, Father, we are most grateful. And Lord, should, should there be someone who would listen to this sermon and they are yet lost, or perhaps in some way you are showing them and revealing to them you're you're opening up that glimmer of light father help them to see help them to believe the words of truth that they have heard and received may they become alive and real to them and father by your grace and mercy draw them to yourself Grant to them faith that they might believe. Grant to them that in believing and receiving Christ, they repent of their sin 
and they turn from their sin and follow You the rest of their days. And Father, for us who are in Christ, let us be forever grateful and thankful for the grace which we have received. So Father, help us now as we consider the death of Christ, His burial, His resurrection, and as we partake of communion this morning. Help us, Lord, even in the midst of it, to remember the marvelous grace of a loving Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.